Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Most of us know that the phrase caveat emptor means let the buyer beware. The phrase is a warning to the consumer that it is better to thoroughly check out the goods that you plan on buying before you do so, rather than trying to get your money back after the fact. Let me offer a, another warning here that some of us should take to heart. Permissum praedicatio cavio, or let the preacher beware. Now, in the interest of full disclosure and letting you do a little caveat emptor yourselves, I have to admit here that I'm leaning on some near-forgotten Latin skills that I first learned in high school about years ago, <laughs> which were subsequently revived by Dr. David Scare while I was at the seminary. So I might be a little bit off on my translation, but I'm probably reasonably close. If it turns out that I'm right, these words might be something that I ought to have engraved on a plaque and perhaps hung on my study door right next to those religious cartoons and the quotes from Yogi Berra. Allow me to explain. Sometimes I look at the lectionary and I think to myself, why do they hate me? <laughs> really, these texts for Mother's Day? Now, yes, it's true, there is no mysterious and conspiratorial them out there whose sole purpose it is in life to make the preaching task one that is very spiritually challenging for me. That comes naturally as we wrestle with the texts of God's Word. And it's certainly not an experience that is unique to just pastors, is it? Anyone who listens carefully as the Scriptures are read on a Sunday morning or who reads the Scriptures for themselves periodically can have the same sort of experience. God's Word can often make us squirm and struggle, and it should, even if one is not going to preach a sermon on a Sunday morning. The fact is, the sermon is going to get composed and edited anyway, and it is also true that today for the church, it's the sixth Sunday of Easter. But we also know, do we not, both shepherd and flock, that for many of you in the pews, today is going to be thought of first and foremost as that secularly contrived day of Mother's Day. No matter what is on the church calendar or printed on the front of the worship folder. And I know that full well that there is many a mother and even grandmother sitting in church this Sunday surrounded by children and grandchildren who enter the church door but three times a year. You know, those three days of holy obligation for those who rarely think of holiness. Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day. These mothers' maternal pride in their small flock is unmistakable, as is their love for the same. Yet a mother's love is rarely blind. Mothers can be brutally honest, not only about the strengths of their offspring, but their weaknesses as well. And so we preach this day not only to the woman who is both mother and grandmother and a profoundly convicted Christian, but also to her children, those who have largely walked away from the faith and maybe even to her grandchildren, some of whom have not even had the opportunity to know and to understand 
just what it is that Jesus Christ has done for them. I note this not only as a preacher, but also as an observer of the human condition and all of the ways that we sometimes think that we know more and we know better than God, our true Father, and more and better than our common mother, His holy church. It is simply the way that things have been for a long time, and certainly over the years that I have experienced them as a son and brother, as a husband, a father, and now pastor. And now I speak as a husband and a father to mothers of children of all ages. Any woman who is sitting out here who is a mother, especially one who is old enough to have grandchildren, sees that she may have more years behind her than she has years ahead of her. And so she has one eye on eternity and the other eye on her earthly legacy. She is rightly concerned for her children and her grandchildren, as all good mothers are. It is her hope that over the course of this hour of God serving us, that the words in the liturgy or in the readings or in the prayers or the hymns or in the words that I preach during this sermon, through that the Holy Spirit will reach out to her children and her grandchildren. She hopes and prays that God will give them faith in the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Gee, no pressure on the preacher here. Let's first, though, be very careful to understand a mother's motives in this situation. It is very fashionable in our culture, especially among the young and also among those outside of the church who try to educate and influence them, to decry the emphasis that we in the church put on salvation and in our hope in heaven. Such talk and such hopes are too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good, we are told. You know, yet I sincerely hope that any mother or grandmother that has the slightest bit of backbone will give any pastor or teacher who also spouts such silliness a brief and painful introduction, reintroduction that is, to the catechism, preferably over the head or right between the eyes. But you don't have to be a mother to do that. Still, a faithful mother will also have something other than heaven on her mind. She also wants those she loves to know the joy that comes from abiding in the love of Jesus Christ even now, helping us in our struggles with temptation, pain, and disappointment in this earthly life. Now, abide is not a word that we hear too much these days, and that's kind of a shame. We do occasionally sing, abide with me, fast falls the eventide, and we rightly do evoke this love of sentiment and the sense of security that this hymn brings out in us, both against the dark of temporal night and also against our eventual earthly deaths. Still, even in the church, we don't use the word abide often enough to have a, a deep sense of its true meaning. These days, when you hear the word abide, it often means just to tolerate something or to endure it. In days long past, though, to abide meant to dwell in or to dwell with. Not just as one might inhabit a house, mind you, but with the intimacy or physical closeness like that of a vine and its branches. Hmm. That, in fact, is the metaphor we heard in last week's readings from the Gospel of John, wasn't it? To abide in Christ is to dwell in Christ, and He in us. 
so that we are every bit as intimate and connected in terms of our being as our branch to a vine. Of one stalk, of one root, the vine feeds the branches the nutrients that they need to provide the fruit and produce the fruit that fulfills the purpose of the vine. In Christ we have our life and our being. And that, in that we might produce the fruit that the Spirit shows so that we might show the world Christ's love for us and our love for Christ and for our neighbors. For love's sake, the Father sent Jesus to us. We know from our studies of the Bible or perhaps from long past days in Sunday school that it was God's intent to dwell with His people from the Exodus onward. He wanted this in spite of the fact that they were full of imperfections and had a distinct lack of holiness. And so the Lord called His people to holiness and He fashioned for them a sacrificial system as a means by which they could be cleansed of their sins. Ah, but He also established for Himself within the tabernacle or the temple a place where His glory might abide, the Holy of Holies. And then at the end of the ages, He sent His Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, in and through His incarnation, His life, His suffering, death, and resurrection, God chose to abide with us, to be one with us, that we might abide with Him someday without fear of the awful stains of sin and of death. And this means that for the first nine months or so of His life, just as did each of us here, our Savior Jesus did abide with His mother, in just such a way as a branch abides with a vine. We were part of our mothers and yet separate. We were dwelling within her as God miraculously knit us together within her womb. And in most cases, she took care to live in such a way as to do no harm to us, knowing that whatever she did to herself, she did also to us, her neighbor in the most extraordinary of ways. Our mother's bodies were home to us. Her hopes and her prayers for our safe development and delivery were every bit as important to our well-being, every bit as a part of our nourishment as the food we took from her. What she took in fueled our growth deep within the shelter of her body. A loving mother and a loving grandmother also wants her children and her grandchildren to know that the shelter is within the love of Christ as well and to live in that love, to abide in that love day after day. She wants them to know that the true and lasting joy of this Easter season and of each little Easter that takes place here on Sunday mornings, she wants them to know and to be constantly reassured that in Christ they are forgiven of their sins. They are relieved of the necessity of carrying the burden of them day after day and year after year. She wants her children and her grandchildren to know firsthand the warmth and the compassion of God's love, a love that is willing to abide within them and to accompany us throughout the wholeness of life. It is not just a thing that we have for this hour of worship on Sunday morning. It's a constant presence. It grants us strength and endurance as we need it. And it gives us the confidence that with our Lord's support, we will indeed be conquerors of all earthly things. 
a faithful mother or grandmother has been a captain in the church militant, this church on earth, long enough to know the value of trust in the Lord. She knows that she can confidently, confidently act as she sees fit, so long as she acts with the intent and the mind of Christ. And she wants that same boldness in the face of life's challenges for her children, that they might draw as much as possible from the well of God's wonders of this world. She who fulfilled the Creator's command to be fruitful and multiply in the biological sense of the phrase, also wants her children to be fruitful and fullest in the spiritual sense of the word, that their joys might be multiplied and not their sorrows. An experienced mother understands that sorrow is an inevitable part of life, no matter how much her heart aches to protect her babies of any age from grief. She knows that she cannot. Bad things will happen, and they do happen to us all. But as tacticians go, a mother who has been around the block a time or two with her children and her grandchildren knows that many of our sorrows are self-manufactured. In other words, many of life's wounds are self-inflicted ones, and that the more self-centered we are, the more likely we are to pursue those things that can, over time, only do us and those who are around us harm. The perfect model of love, of course, is the love of Jesus, who laid down his life to redeem our lives from the grave. Now, a mother's love is a mere shadow of this love, as is the love of a father. But just as we are imperfect in all things, so we are imperfect in parental love, as much as it may hurt us to say. Even so, I want my children and my grandchildren to know Jesus just as every parent here does. We want the perfect love of God to be just as much or more a part of their lives as is the love that we have for them. Now, while my love for them sometimes threatens to overwhelm me, there is still only so much that I can do for them. I cannot abide with them as He does even now. So too, the time will come when the only way that I will abide with them is in their memory and in the gift that is Holy Communion, where God momentarily tears down the barriers of time and separation between heaven and earth, and we are united again for a time with the saints who have gone before us. But the love of Jesus Christ is also boundless, and He can, for His love's sake, abide with them now and always. And through that indwelling, He always does so much more for them than I can ever hope to or will. So thoroughly and so completely has Jesus abided with us that He willingly suffered His death on the cross for us. His sacrifice was vindicated and confirmed when our Heavenly Father raised Him from the dead. And now that risen Son may abide in us and we in Him. Through His sacrifice and through the Father's seal of approval upon it, we have the promises of endless mercy and everlasting life. And we have this too. Our God calls us to abide in His love so thoroughly that we will give our lives for His other children, our neighbors. We cannot love those around us as we should, for we cannot love Christ as we ought either. But to love God is to love His people, flawed as they are, weak and incapable as we are. And to love His people is to love God. 
to love one another as we wish, we must love Jesus first. We must abide in His love. Only in that can we hope to abide in the love of family, of friends, and yes, even of strangers. I am not a mother, but I am a parent. And in addition to saving faith, I want more than anything for my sons this, that they love those who God gives them to love, each other, their friends, even their parents. And one day that they love wives of their own and love the mothers of their own children and love those children that will be my grandchildren. I want them to take joy in that love, to be enriched by it, to be strengthened by it, to be lifted up by it. But to love like this, they must first know for themselves the saving love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, who took into himself frail human flesh that he might abide with us now and for all eternity. Abide in his love. Love one another. Have joy that is full. In his holy name. Amen.